Well, our text this morning is in John chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 45 through the end of the chapter. We'll take a few minutes to get there. This is the last message in our series, The Real Jesus Calling, Hearing the Actual Voice of Christ. And I feel compelled this morning to kind of issue one more plea for spiritual discernment and for wisdom. And so I want to take a few minutes to work our way to our text as we've been making a comparison between John chapter 10 and John chapter 11, comparing those texts to the fake Jesus of Sarah Young's popular books, which began with Jesus Calling in 2004 and continue to sell millions of copies, lead so many astray. I mentioned a couple of months ago about Stockholm Syndrome, and I think it's worth bringing up again. Stockholm Syndrome is the name, it's the the title given to kind of a horrific phenomenon in which victims of kidnapping often feel like uh, they are now beginning to bond with their aggressor, with the captor. And this happens through severe emotional and even physical uh, abuse and manipulation. The emotional and psychological pressure can become so intense that the captive literally begins to feel comforted while being in captivity. And in cases where a person has been held for years, now the outside world begins to represent danger and uncertainty because the only certainty now is behind closed doors. One of the most infamous kidnapping cases which resulted in the victim literally siding with her captors was the kidnapping of 19-year-old Patty Hearst in 1974. She was the granddaughter of the publishing giant William Randolph Hearst, whose castle many of us have been to, but the kidnappers were the members of the, of the Symbionese Liberation Army. They were attempting to conduct a domestic terrorist war on U.S. soil, and they thought Patty Hearst could get them some money and political leverage. But the real twist happened that just a, a few months after her abduction, when news leaked out that she had actually joined the cause... And in fact, there is very famous uh, video footage of her assisting with a machine gun in her hand, assisting a bank robbery, freely traveling the country with these, with these men. She was involved in a shootout between her, her abductors on one side and the Los Angeles police on the other side. And it took 18 more months or so for her to finally be captured. She was captured. She was charged with armed robbery. She served two years of a seven-year sentence, but was finally pardoned on the basis of having been severely emotionally manipulated by her captors. In 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan was picked up while hitchhiking, and she was captured by Cameron and Jan Hooker. Colleen was tortured, and she was raped, and then she was put in a coffin-sized box in which she was held captive about 22 to 23 hours a day for the next four years. And she was kept in this box. After almost four years, they took Colleen home to see her family, and she went in to visit with her family, spent the night there, never told them what had happened, and voluntarily returned to the situation and went back to the box for another three and a half years. Finally, Jan Hooker had a moment of conscience and helped Colleen escape. But the chilling aspect of Stockholm Syndrome is that people, which ought to be terrifying to us, eventually become a source of comfort to us. 
And I believe that is a very appropriate comparison to what we might call spiritual Stockholm Syndrome, in which a spiritual experience or a habit or an influence creates an emotional bond in the heart of a professing believer in Christ. Now, I'll just give you a a few examples. Joyce Meyer. She's one of the most widely known teaching ministries in the world today. She's geared especially toward women to give them confidence, to give them hope. She's very interesting to listen to. But among her interesting teachings are things like Jesus stopped being the Son of God, Jesus was born again. Jesus paid for our sins in hell, not on the cross. We are all little gods. And she characterizes her teaching as being straight from God. And this is her phrase, beyond scripture. And yet, because she has such a dynamic personality, she's, she's so uh, engaging to listen to. She encourages women to live exciting and energetic lives with hope and joy. She becomes a source of emotional comfort to the very ones who ought to be running as fast as they can away from her. How about Hillsong Music? Hillsong Music is based out of the megachurch Hillsong in Australia. Hillsong Music is probably the most popular music in Christian circles across the board right now. It's used in church services. Their, their music is played in literally every denomination in the world today. It's emotionally captivating. Their music, from a pure musical standpoint, is outstanding. It's great to listen to. But there are major problems with this. Hillsong Church is not a church. It's a cult. And how do we define a cult? In this case, we define it by the fact that they follow a man, not the Scriptures. Their pastor, Brian Houston, is the center of this group. One of Hillsong's own worship leaders wrote this, quote, We are all about fulfilling our senior pastor's vision. And by the way, his vision is to fill the world with worldly, substanceless versions of Christianity. And he says that vision is straight from God. It's a strange mixture of Pentecostalism, prosperity gospel, seeker-friendly ecclesiological theory, and universalism all kind of mixed in together. One writer said, the substance and theology of the music is irrelevant to Hillsong. It's the attractive nature of the music, not the theology that draws people to it. And what's important about this is that it's Hillsong music that funds the Brian Houston cult, otherwise known as Hillsong Church. Now, you might say, but they have some good songs. That's true, they do. On occasion, they accidentally hit on the theologically accurate song. I mean, every clock is right twice in 24 hours, right? But every time you support that one or two or three good songs, you're also literally sending money to a cult. And yet, because this music has such an emotional appeal, it has a natural comfort to it, people have become emotionally dependent on something that they should run from, spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. And of course, we've already seen very extensively that that same phenomenon occurs with Sarah Young's Jesus Calling. Jesse Johnson rightly observes that Jesus Calling presents a form of quietism. Quietism is sometimes called higher living, and this approaches the Christian life with a kind of a let go and let God mentality, creating a, a, a battle between the physical and the spiritual, saying that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. The physical is evil, the spiritual is righteous. That's nothing more than Platonism, derived from the philosopher Plato. Quietism 
says that real prayer is emptying your mind and it distorts obedience and and sanctification into nothing more than having some sort of mystical experience. And and you're, you're quieting your heart so that you cease striving. You can be still before God and you let your mind go blank so that you can experience a spiritual plateau. But the Bible says that we cry out in prayer with supplications and requests that were also actively involved in progressive sanctification and being obedient to the Lord. First Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself for godliness. But for the false Jesus, supposedly speaking in Jesus' calling, the, the, the key to everything is to empty yourself, to do nothing. Never mind that Paul uses phrases in Philippians 3 like, I press on, straining forward, I press on, hold true. And so for Sarah Young, her most often quoted verse and the real key to her twisted theology is Psalm 46.10. And I'll phrase it the way she would phrase it. Be still and know that I am God. You've seen that all over the place. You've seen it certainly in Jesus Calling. You've seen it in other Christian publications. But context is everything. In context, Psalm 46 is a warning to the nations that when Messiah returns, he's going to defeat his enemies. And in verse 9, the previous verse, he says he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth and the rebellious nations are commanded, be still and know that I am God. It's a command to the rebel that you'd better watch it. He goes on to say, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God is not an encouragement to sit under a tree and smell rose petals while emptying your mind so you can feel God's warmth. It is, you will submit to the rule of the king of the universe. And yet Jesus' calling has had such a spiritual Stockholm syndrome hold on its captives, its victims, because of the emotions of tenderness and comfort and hope that it generates. And the, the false Jesus of Jesus' calling, unfortunately, very much represents the Jesus of contemporary evangelicalism. That the basic purpose of Christ in your life is to serve you, to comfort you, to be here for you, to give you your dreams, to give you emotions of peace and security. But I think that can lull us to sleep as to what the imperative and the the crucial and the critical issue concerning Christ, what his actual call to us is from Scripture. The issue which is completely missed by Jesus' calling, completely missed by Hillsong. In our text today, in John 11, 45 and following, in the aftermath of Jesus having just raised Jesus, raised Lazarus rather from the dead, we see this seminal, vital issue, this core issue brought to the forefront And so today, our final installment of the real Jesus calling, we're calling the voice of a substitute sacrifice. A substitute sacrifice. Now, this story takes place in three different scenes, so we're going to just kind of let the narrative dictate our thoughts. Scene one takes place at the tomb of Lazarus, and we'll just call scene one the people's division. The people's division. Lazarus has been raised. Jesus has publicly demonstrated that he's God, that he has power over death, that he is the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament, that he is God's representative man on earth, that the die has been cast, and now this polarization begins to take place, really very much a preview of eternity. 
And so in John eleven forty five, we see the beginning of the people's division. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They believed in him. Now, we have to note that in other places in John's gospel, we see that it's possible to come to a superficial, temporary, non-saving belief in Jesus. This is a, a flash in the pan. It is to be the rocky soil in which the seed of the gospel is sown, but the little sprout dies out before it can take root. John 2.23 says that many believed upon Christ when they saw his miracles, but the very next verse says that Jesus didn't trust them because they were false believers. John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, meaning everyone who was following him, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And of course, James reminds us in James 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So it's possible to have a certain element of belief without actually being saved. But this group here in verse 45 who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, it seems that this is speaking of genuine saving faith. They saw the miracle. They contemplated what had just happened with their minds and they came to the correct conclusion that Jesus must be who he says he is. And this is a very critical statement They had seen what he did. They believed in him. The object of saving faith is always Jesus Christ. There's no way around that. There's no option to say, I believe in God's love. I just don't believe in Jesus. That's not an option. And and that fact is is shouted out throughout John's gospel. And then it will come up in a couple of chapters and it will be summarized in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we would affirm that these Jews in verse 45 possess genuine saving faith and especially because they're contrasted with other Jews who also witnessed the raising of Lazarus and they would have an opposite reaction. They would rebel instead. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And here we see the people's division which is exactly what the ministry of Jesus causes Jesus himself said in Luke 12, verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. These people are stubborn. They're hard-hearted. And it shows us, by the way, a key principle that some unbelievers will not be convinced even if they see someone raised from the dead, no matter how much evidence is placed before them. In Luke 16, 31, Jesus said in the parable that if someone will not believe the word of God, they certainly won't believe even if they saw someone raised from the dead. And this is important because the unbelief of the unbeliever is not because of ignorance. It's not because of lack of evidence. It's not because of lack of knowledge. It's because of a willful decision to rebel against all the evidence that they've had presented to them. The unbelief of the unbeliever is solely their responsibility. They've seen all that God has to offer. New life, salvation from sin. I don't know about you, but the thought of being buried in a hole in the ground isn't an exciting one to me. And if I was hanging around a guy that just emptied graves at will, I would say, he's my guy. I want to follow him. But instead, they turned away. By the way, verses 45 and 46 give us a neat little preview of heaven and hell. 
Those who believed desired to be with Jesus and to stay with him. Those who rebelled desired to get away from Jesus and try to do something about him. Listen, don't picture that hell will be populated by people who wish they had believed. It will be populated by people who hate Jesus, who still believe themselves above accountability to God and given the opportunity, they would murder Jesus. I've had people tell me, well, I know some really nice people who are unbelievers. They, they don't hate Christ. But if they won't come to faith to him, according to the Bible, they do. They do hate Christ. John fifteen eighteen, Jesus characterizes those who won't come to faith in him as those who hate him. And it's a Greek word that Jesus uses that means to detest something, to have an aversion for something, to want to get as far away from something as possible. It is a hatred And so we see the people's division, those who would stay with Christ and those who refuse his offer. There's a second scene, and this scene takes place at the Sanhedrin Council's meeting place, the Jerusalem Council. We'll just call scene two the leader's plot. The leader's plot. And we pick up this scene in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nations, our nation. Know this something, by the way, the leaders of Israel never tried to deny the miracles of Jesus. It was too obvious. Why, why was it obvious? Well, there's a guy named Lazarus who would have something to say to them. Their concern was for what people coming to faith in Christ would do to them, which means they saw Jesus as their enemy. All who will not believe on the Lord Jesus are his enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. There is no neutral position. The fear of the leadership was that if enough people believed in Jesus, the Romans would take away the wealth and the privileged position of the leaders, that is, their place, and they would just destroy Israel as they knew it, our nation. And by the way, they were right to a certain degree. The Romans did not tolerate rebellion, but they they totally misjudged the intentions of Jesus. He didn't come to earth to start an Israelite rebellion. He came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19 tells us this. The setting up of his earthly kingdom was not his agenda at his first coming. Now, it is his ultimate agenda at his second coming, but that wasn't what he was here to do now. He wasn't dressed as a soldier. He was dressed as a preacher, as a prophet, as, as, a, as a humble representative of God to bring people to faith in himself. But the ringleader of the bunch, a man by the name of Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest, He spoke up in verse 49. Very polite man, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas had been appointed high priest under Rome's rule by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus in AD 18, he continued in office for almost 20 years, which is a long time until he was finally ousted in AD 36. He was arrogant. He was condescending. He was self-important. He was even telling the council, you know nothing at all. He was probably a Sadducee, and there's ancient writings around the time of Christ that tell us that Sadducees had the reputation of being the rudest men on the planet, and they liked it that way. 
He was the son-in-law of Annas, who had been high priest for the decade prior and still retained quite a bit of influence. You have to understand that, that now under Roman rule, the, the high priesthood was essentially a mafia-like family business that brought great wealth and power to themselves under one condition, as long as they kept the peace and they served Rome by keeping everything the same. It was not uncommon for the Romans to remove a high priest who couldn't do that, but Caiaphas lasted longer than almost any other high priest in first century Roman Palestine, and it shows that he would do whatever it took to remain in power, including being willing to murder one man to keep the peace. And his logic is, if Jesus dies, the whole likelihood of an insurrection under Jesus dies with him, and we continue on as always, and our bank accounts keep getting full. So the conclusion of this meeting is in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. By the way, a little side note of irony here. The Sanhedrin would be successful in crucifying Jesus, supposedly to save the nation, but the price would be very high because about 35 years later, Rome would crush their nation and eliminate and annihilate Israel as they knew it. Well, now we begin to get a glimmer of the final scene. And scene three takes place simultaneously in the wilderness town and in Jerusalem. We'll call scene three the coming cross. The coming cross. Now, either by omniscient knowledge or by being informed by a sympathetic Sanhedrin member, Jesus became aware of this plot. There were a few Sanhedrin members who were secret followers of Christ, and so they would have heard this. And now in verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So he goes to this little nondescript town about a dozen miles from Jerusalem, stays there for a little bit. Luke 17, 18, and 19 tells us that from there he went north back to to Samaria, then to Galilee, and then he would make his way back down to Jerusalem But now this same scene that's happening at the same time takes us to Jerusalem. This is at the same time as Jesus goes a dozen miles away from Jerusalem. What's happening now? Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the third Passover mentioned in John's gospel and it, John begins to set the scene now. In Jesus' day, probably only about 20% of all the Jews in the world actually lived in Israel. The rest were scattered. But now at Passover time, hundreds of thousands of Jews would would come from all over the world for Passover. They would begin gathering beforehand to numbers upwards of a million people crammed into Jerusalem. If you've ever seen a map of Jerusalem at the time of of Jesus, you can almost throw a rock five times and get across Jerusalem. It's a very small city. So now there's a million people beginning to pack the city, camping out all over the countryside, all around. The Jews of the world were gathering And this is a crucial time because Jesus now is on his way back and he would give them one more chance. He would present himself to them as their king, sometimes called the triumphal entry. 
but they as a nation would ultimately join their leaders in their murderous intentions. You know, all through John's gospel, we've been making our way through this for a number of months now. We've been traveling very slowly toward the cross of Christ, but now in verses 55 through 57, Golgotha is on the horizon. And the cross, the place of the skull, is directly in front of us. And the people of God are gathering to take part in the murder of their Messiah. Very shortly, Jesus will set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing each and every heart of every one of the people who are gathering. Gathering, by the way, they're gathering ironically to spiritually purify themselves at Passover. The text says this, while being about to follow leaders who are now, even at this moment, plotting the death of the Son of God. There's great spiritual hypocrisy happening here. But what about the words of Caiaphas? He said in verse 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he intended this murderous act for evil, but his words are carrying much more than a voluntary responsible wickedness for which he is definitely responsible. They also carry the meaning that God intended and that Caiaphas did not intend. Verse 51 tells us we get spiritual insight. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now, because Caiaphas was high priest, he was still technically the spokesman of God. But unintentionally, he spoke prophetically of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. I love Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This is a classic case of Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Don't think that Caiaphas has suddenly turned into an evangelist. He simply was speaking the words that the Lord ordained he would speak. But the death of Jesus was even bigger than just being the substitutionary sacrifice for Israel. It would accomplish the gathering of all of God's future redeemed, not only the Jews who were lost, but Gentiles who will be brought into the kingdom by the forgiveness of sin. And by the way, just a little theological note here, according to verse 52, what does the Bible call unsaved people who in the future will be gathered into God's kingdom? The children of God. You do not become the child of God at your salvation. You were always the child of God in his mind. You just had to come to that point of faith where it became consummated. And through the unwitting mouth of Caiaphas, God has revealed the purpose of the death of Christ to be a substitute sacrifice. What I want to do is just stop now, and I want to let the, the theology of this narrative sink much more deeply into our hearts When we speak of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, we're speaking of what theologians and what the Old Testament calls the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement. There's a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament for atonement about a hundred times, and it basically means to appease, to appease. The true believer in God in the Old Testament knows that only God can appease God that we need him to atone for our sins. Psalm 79, verse 9, 
The psalmist writes, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Atonement is not something I can do. It's something God has to do. The Greek New Testament doesn't specifically use a word that just generally means atonement, but it uses a lot of other words that describe specific parts or aspects of the atonement. But sometimes we're, we're tempted to explain to somebody when somebody says, well, what's the gospel of Christ? Well, we, we're tempted to say Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And to us, that generally makes sense, but without a context, that's a nonsense statement. Well, why couldn't Jesus write a check? Why couldn't he pay a different price? Why did he have to die? Why do my sins even need someone to die for them? Why can't I just do penance? Why can't I, I punish myself for a while to atone for my sins? Why can't I walk on my knees for 15 miles until they're bloody and then that makes up for my sins? Or why can't I just do a lot of good things for God so that that will take away my sins? And so we need to understand what that statement actually means that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. There, there's four key elements for us to understand concerning the, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And I think the cause, what this will do is cause rejoicing for you because the more you understand the gospel, the greater your worship, the greater your rejoicing to show you that you could not atone for your own sin. Only Christ can do it. So let me give you four key elements of the atonement, of the, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ which was prophesied by Caiaphas. The first element we'll just call perfection. Perfection. God did something very amazing for us. He ordained that he would be made known to the world through a chosen nation, through Israel. And he made a covenant with Israel, which included a a living picture of the fact that he was being gracious to sinful souls, sinful rebels. And this living picture was the sacrificial system. The, the system in which temporary atonement or temporary satisfaction could be attained by faith through the blood sacrifices of animals as a payment for sin. But there's a small problem here. An animal isn't made in the image of God like we are, so it's never sufficient payment. It's never sufficient payment. Go to a restaurant and eat $100 worth of food and offer them a 20 and see what they do. That's not a sufficient payment. But what he did was to basically provide for us a a model that helps us understand that sin is offensive to our creator. And as our creator, he has the right to snuff out our lives. But instead of ending our lives, for those who would repent and humble themselves before him, the sacrificial system shows us the model that God provides a substitute payment. A substitute. And since the wages of sin is death, that payment has to be death. And because of Israel, we understand this. Do you understand that just telling somebody Jesus died on the cross for your sins without a context doesn't doesn't help them? They need a context. Israel gives us our context. The sacrificial system is there for us to understand that God is pointing forward to Christ, pointing forward to the cross. The sacrificial system, although it's temporary, although it's, it's inefficient, it cannot pay the full price. It can't even pay the full price temporarily. But it is very useful to us because it shows us the principles of sacrifice that help us understand what it means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
And one of these principles is the perfection of the sacrifice. For example, the Passover lamb as instituted in Exodus 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. In other words, you will bring the most perfect thing you have. You will not bring the dregs of your flock. You will bring the best of your flock. Now, what is the principle there? Is the principle just, well, God deserves your best? No. We get the principle fully elucidated for us in the New Testament because the New Testament tells us about the sacrifice of Christ. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. By the way, there's the answer to why you can't just give God money or good works or write him a check because the only currency he accepts is blood. The only currency he accepts is your life. Why did the sacrifice have to be perfect? Because only a perfect sacrifice is acceptable to God and only an acceptable sacrifice is sufficient to pay for the massive lifetime of sins you've racked up. And you might say, well, I haven't racked up that many. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. And what do you do with somebody who has violated all of God's laws? You separate him from God and separate him from those who love God. See also eternal judgment. Well, there's a second element of atonement. We'll just call it transfer. Transfer. Theologians use the word imputed or imputation, but it just means transfer. Now, again, the Old Testament sacrificial system provides a template for us to understand the work of Christ. Leviticus chapter 1 describes the bringing of a bull for a burnt offering for sin. It's to be a male without blemish. Leviticus 1 says, He shall lay, this is the worshiper, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, on the bull. This is while it's still alive. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he, the worshiper, shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Lay his hand on the the sacrifice. What is that? That is symbolically saying all the sin that I've committed is being transferred to this sacrifice. And you know this, by the way, the worshiper doesn't just say, okay, priest, I'm walking away now. Let me know when the bull is dead. The worshiper must kill the bull because it is his sin that killed him. Question, who put Jesus on the cross? You did. You did. We see this numerous times in Leviticus, once in the book of Numbers, the laying on the hands of of the offering to symbolically transfer sin. Now this gives the worshiper a context to receive, by the way, further revelation from the prophet Isaiah of a coming messianic human sacrifice. You can only sacrifice a human to pay for a human a coming messianic sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And listen to the obvious language of transfer, of imputation in Isaiah 53. This is speaking prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this this transfer language. I'm just going to read bullet points here. 
Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's stricken for the transgression of my people. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He will make many be accounted righteous or imputed as righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He's numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. This is transfer language at an exponential rate. It is transfer. This is the language of an unpayable debt being paid by somebody else. And of course, we recognize immediately the transfer language of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin. He didn't just take your sins, he became sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a third element of atonement, we'll call it cancellation. Cancellation. Theologians sometimes use the word expiation, but cancellation is easier to remember. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and listen to this phrase, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, what is this record of debt? What is that talking about? It literally means a handwritten document. And it's a term taken from the field of law and commerce. It's a certificate of indebtedness. It's a document written out by the one who owes, saying precisely what is owed to another. I think the easiest way to understand that is that the record of debt is an IOU from you to God. It's a metaphor for the document that you wrote saying, I owe you, God. You say, well, I don't remember writing any document. The last time you sinned, you added more to that document. That IOU is a list of every sin you have ever committed and you owe God for it. What is the wages of sin? Death. And so you owe him your death. You owe him your life. It's an admission that you owe God for violating his holiness. What do you owe him? Why do you owe him? For the Jew, you broke the obligation your people made with God. Did you know that Exodus 24.3 is the signature of Israel to say, we will obey? Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Signed, sealed, notarized, delivered. For the Gentile... You might say, hey, I've never even read the Bible. I'm not under any obligation. You broke the obligation that your conscience made with God. Romans 2, beginning in verse 14, says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. What does that mean? It means that even atheists don't believe murder is okay. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. By nature, every single human being knows right from wrong. It is the law written on their hearts. So the record of debt is an IOU written 
against us, measured against the perfect standard of God's written or moral law. How massive is your IOU? Hebrews 2 verse 2 says that every single violation of the law of God will be counted against you. Every single one. Some of you here have been on this earth for 60 and 70 years. You have racked up an IOU that would fill libraries. But verse 14 says he canceled the record of debt. It means to wipe it out, to obliterate it, to destroy it, to get rid of any evidence that it ever existed. And how did he do this? He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. Now, why is that important? It was common to nail to a Roman cross the crimes for which the criminal was being executed. What was nailed to the cross of Christ? The sins against God's perfect holiness for which you should have died. Now, there's an important correlation here. What was actually physically nailed to the cross of Christ? What was nailed to him was a sign stating that he is the king of the Jews. It was the truth about Jesus. But spiritually speaking and legally in the courts of heaven, nailed to the cross also was the truth about you. And how is it that God has now set aside the IOU because the IOU has been paid by another. God is perfectly just. Hebrews 2 verse 2 says that every sin will be recompensed, every violation paid for, and God is perfectly gracious that he forgives sin and he forgets our trespasses. So how can it be both? How can it be just and how can he be gracious? Well, his justice was satisfied when Jesus was crucified and his grace was extended when he nailed your IOU to that cross. Remember, the the sins listed in your IOU are not just victimless crimes. According to Psalm 51, every sin is a sin against God. You did it to Him. You acted like an enemy of God. It's no wonder that John writes in John 1.16 that from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Because the list of your IOUs is endless. The list of your sins is endless. And every one of them were directed at God as if you hated Him as your enemy. And he nailed them to the cross. He's made that a blank document. One more element to the atonement we'll call satisfaction. Satisfaction. In Romans 3, Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, and 1 John 4, the, the word that's used is propitiation. Propitiation. Satisfaction is easier to remember. In the Old Testament, you can't get away from the wrath of God. The wrath of God against sin is referred to almost 600 times using 20 different Hebrew words that emphasize his indignation, his anger, his wrath, his fury against sin and against evil. And because God is perfectly righteous, he can only be satisfied. He can only have his wrath turned away by a fully paid price. And it's so important. This is so key. And we don't get this very often to remember that the cross of Christ is not primarily aimed at humanity. The cross is not primarily for you. The cross of Christ is primarily aimed upward, heavenward for God. Because it was God's holy outrage that has to be appeased if sinners are to escape judgment. It's God's rightful anger against violations of his holiness that have to be recompensed. And it's God's indignation that has to be quenched and put out by full payment. 
Dr. John Stott wrote that God has, quote, a steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. But only Christ can provide that satisfaction because only Christ has infinite worth, infinite value as infinite God who possesses complete purity, complete holiness. That's the only person who can satisfy that debt. And listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. The atonement with its perfection and transfer and cancellation and satisfaction, the atonement did not create a situation in which now God can love you. God's love wasn't the result of the atonement. The atonement was the result of God's love. You understand that Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scripture outlines God's plan of salvation all the way back to God's electing love. Listen to this. This is almost unfathomable. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And then there's a time element given to his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How about this? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that was always going to be. His grace was always going to be extended to you before the ages began. His elected plan for you was simply consummated at the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Spiritual Stockholm Syndrome holds a victim captive with false ideology Posing as truth, we're warned in Colossians 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. But I love Ephesians 4, verse 8. It speaks of the ascension of Christ, and it says that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He's captured the elect from the enemy of sin. He's transferred them from the dying kingdom of Satan to the eternal kingdom of God. You have been made captives by God's love, captives by God's grace, captives by the atonement. Listen, that's not spiritual Stockholm syndrome. That's spiritual I'm going home syndrome because of the atonement. That's not dusty theology That's the difference between the flames of hell and the glories of heaven. There's nothing dusty about that. The third verse of the glorious hymn, Salvation Song, says that the burdens of the curse were lifted through his offering. Here's the atonement. Satisfied through suffering. All the blessings he deserves poured on my unworthy soul. And of course, the proper response is found in the chorus. The proper response to the substitute sacrifice of Christ is to proclaim glory and honor and wisdom and power to the Lamb, the substitute sacrificial Lamb of God. My hope and my prayer for you as I've been praying for you all week and I even now in my heart am, am hopeful in the Lord that the wonder and the delight of the real Jesus calling the call to salvation, the call to the glory of Christ, that those whom he called, he also justified, that the real Jesus calling would be your anchor 
and be your security both now and into eternity. Amen? Amen. Our Father, we thank you so much for the true Jesus Christ. He even told us that there would be many antichrists that would come. And in our day, we're seemingly surrounded by them, but if we will open the words of Scripture and open the Gospel of John, we see the real and the only true Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, the one who was dead and is now alive and has been raised up to the right hand of the Father and is seated at your right hand, making intercession for us and being our advocate. And even now, as he promised in the Gospel of John, holding us secure in his hand and keeping us safe until that moment that he brings us home. All because of the cross. And Lord, it grieves our hearts for any who would lose interest in the atonement. But we come as worshipers thankful to you and grateful to you for the satisfaction that you made for our sins, for satisfying your own wrath through Christ, for canceling the record of debt that was laid up against us and nailing it to the cross, for transferring our wickedness to the sacrifice of Christ and transferring his righteousness to us. For this we thank you, we give you praise, and we give you honor so that Christ alone may be exalted. And it's in his name we pray, amen.